It is championship point, Novak Djokovic. Medvedev served down the tee. Big boy for Djokovic is in. He gets a short ball, plays it to the juice court. He's going to play the backhand volley. Medvedev goes over the top. Djokovic, yes! Hello and welcome to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. And well, it was title number nine here in Australia for Novak Djokovic. What a dynasty he is creating at Rod Laver Arena. We have plenty to unpack, not only what we saw tonight in the final, but also what we've seen over the past couple of weeks. Amazing. The Australian Open is complete and... It got through with a minimum of fuss after all the work that was put in. An amazing job by everyone associated with this tournament. We made it to the end, Chris Bowers. Hello. Hi. Yep, we did. And um, I think we'll look back on this in years to come as a remarkable fortnight. And uh, credit to everybody who's made it happen, including those people who were mistrustful at the start. As uh, you would delivering this podcast we're delivering it straight after the men's final and if you hear some noise in the background Novak Djokovic is moving his way around the Melbourne Park precinct and his fans are following wherever he goes so we might uh, get a few of his supporters uh, in the background here but what a performance seven five six two six two one hour and 53 minutes over Daniel Medvedev it was a masterful performance yet again we come to an event like this and we ask the question the next generation are they going to be coming through and it's been answered again. No, incumbency is everything at this tournament. Yes, and uh, this time last year, Dominic team took Djokovic to five sets in the final. Team went on to win the US Open. But what's happened since then? Nadal won the French and Djokovic has won the Australian. And you have to say that both those performances were absolutely deserved. And, and Djokovic on this form, I mean, I'm still slightly bemused as to how he turned it round in the middle of the tournament because I was commentating on his match against Taylor Fritz. He clearly did have a major problem and he wasn't at his best against Raonic, but maybe it was a minor problem. Maybe he just has the most amazing fitness coach in Ulysses Badio, but whatever it was, he has recovered because the level of tennis he played in the semi-final and final just outstanding and you have to say he's a deserved champion oh he certainly is I mean that opening set he got off to a really great start he broke Medvedev early but Medvedev fought back it it was a tight opening set seven games to five but the thing is with Medvedev we know what a tricky customer a tricky player he is but in terms of matchups going up against Djokovic is probably the most in terms of similarity not the same but in terms of similar... So Djokovic was getting everything back. There was a point as the third set wore on that 
Djokovic just said, I'm not going to miss a ball because Medvedev's level had dropped, his confidence had dropped, and the belief had dropped. So his modus operandi was, I am putting every single ball into play because my opponent is making plenty of unforced errors, and he's the one that has to come up with a big shot and has to force the issue, and he couldn't do it. Yeah, and I think this is actually a bigger defeat for Medvedev than many people might think. You could say, okay, against Djokovic at the Australian Open, well, it's a tough ask. Yes, it is. But, you know, Medvedev sailed through this tournament. He dropped two sets en route to the final. They were against Filip Krajinovic when he was two sets to love up, and he slightly went off the rails, and he lost his cool a little bit, sent his coach out of the stands, regrouped, won the fifth set, and was absolutely flawless in the quarterfinals against Andrei Rublev, and not far off it against Stefanos Tsitsipas in the semifinals. And yet, up against Djokovic, he was shown to be limited. He was, and, I, and he was outplayed. Quite clearly, he was outplayed, and I think... Once that happens, because he couldn't assert any dominance on the contest, that's when the confidence started to drop. And time after time, when he missed a ball, he'd throw his hands up to his chest and he'd be agitated and he's shaking his head and he's going, well, actually, I can't find a way through here because the, the guy down the other end of the court is still so strong. And it happened midway through the second set when he, you suddenly got the sense that he thought, I just can't do anything here. Everything that I have thrown at this guy, he's getting back. And Djokovic's retrieving was absolutely phenomenal. And if Medvedev is going to win a Grand Slam title, either he has to wait for Djokovic and Nadal to uh, retire and hope that he is the leading figure or one of the leading figures of his generation, or he's got to develop something new in his game. Because what he had is not enough to beat Djokovic, I would say, on any surface. Well, this is the thing. So it's that next step for Medvedev. He goes to a career-high ranking of number three in the world, testament to the work he had, that the unbeaten streak he had coming into the final, which I think was up around 20, was 20 matches. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he, he, that one defeat is the Australian Open final. But it's a step forward to play in another major final, which he has done here, with the performance to get there in the first place, plus the body of work. But it just shows you guys like Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, you know, they, they still just keep upping their level to make sure that they stand at the top of the game. And it makes it really hard for these guys coming up. Yes, I mean, there will always be changes of generation in tennis, in every sport. When you see a player... As they get older, their level starts to wane. And we've now had two generations that we've said, right, this lot will take over. First, it was the Raonic, Cilic, um, Nishikori, Dimitrov generation. And they've largely been bypassed. Now we have this new generation of, of Zverev, of Team, of Medvedev. And they're still not making inroads into Nadal and Djokovic. And it's amazing. I don't know if you can hear faintly in the background, but the Nole supporters are out and about, so they might be heading our way. But just on Medvedev, just to, to finish off on that point, um, what level would we consider him on? Is he the ilk now of the Djokovic, Federer, Nadal? Or is he that maybe that level just below where Dominic Team sits? Or... Maybe even just slightly below that too, the Rublev and the Sitsipasses. We'll talk about Stefanos well, a little bit say, later. I would say that team is on the mezzanine level and uh, Medvedev is still one level below. I mean, the fact that team has won a major, you could say, okay, Nadal didn't turn up and Djokovic was disqualified. All of which is true, but team still had to, you know, seize the opportunity, which he did. I think that Medvedev has done very well. But we have seen over the years players who do really well on the tour and they find that 
Grand Slam is an extra step up which they never fully master. Now, he's got to two finals. He's clearly keeping up his level. And you could say, hang around long enough and he'll start winning them. But I remember we said this about Murray for years. If Murray can keep his level, he will pick up more Grand Slam titles as the years go by. Well, Murray was obviously afflicted by some nasty injuries. But even if Murray had kept up his level, Djokovic and Nadal are still up there. Absolutely. But I also think, though, that the, what Medvedev's shown here, the body of work that he's put together, has shown even improvement from what we saw maybe last season. I mean, you put a little asterisk as it was truncated, but the season before... And, I, and there's still room to improve. There's still room to grow. And they'll take plenty out of the one hour and 53 minutes they spent on court. I'm not sure about this. Ah, see, I think, I what, think we've that... Been in, we've been here for four weeks and now if this is our first argument. Well, I just think <laughs> that what Medvedev... What happened to Medvedev was actually an illustration that he is not able to beat the top two if they are really playing on the top of their game. I thought Medvedev would improve from uh, the player that had that amazing run in uh, 2019, won Cincinnati, final of the US Open, took Nadal to five sets, um, won another couple of tournaments before running slightly out of steam at the end of the year. I agree with you. He's built on that, but he is still not quite in that top level. Not, and, not yet, though. Well, but, but where? what is he going to develop that takes him there? I mean, for me, he played as well as he currently can throughout this tournament. And I thought for the first set and a half, he didn't play badly in the final. But I think ultimately Djokovic just... Um, wore him down and in the end Djokovic was proved to have more options than Medvedev and I don't see where Medvedev is going to develop more options I would love him to prove me wrong because he's a nice guy he's great for the game he was masterful in his on-court speech at the end in the ceremony but I and I would like Medvedev to develop something I just don't at this stage see where it's going to come from the net if you wanted me to just nail one thing, because we could spend hours talking about this and we don't have that time, but I think the transition game, to maybe finish off some of these points quicker, because he's so good at the back of the court, but he ends up outlasting opponents and maybe having 26, 27 shot rallies. I think yes. if he could get the transition to come into the net a little bit more, because that was a key feature. Djokovic, yes, boy, he hit was. some beautiful volleys tonight. And we see even Nadal... Federer, that's what they have. Zverev's working on it as well. But just that ability, that all-court, okay, yes, he's great at the back of the court. And he's great. He absorbs pressure and he can turn it around. But getting forward, I think, is one of the key things. You're right in principle. Um, my reservation about this is that because he's got this quirky technique on the forehand, the backhand and the serve, I'm not entirely sure that he will be able to develop the solid technique at the net that will allow him to play like that. I'd love to be proved wrong, but that is my concern about Medvedev. Um, and I thought going into this final that his backcourt game, his speed around the court, his ability to move side to side, his ability to hit backhands from with two hands from a long way wide and get phenomenal angles on them, I thought that that would be good enough to beat Djokovic. It proved not to be the case. And I therefore wonder, what extra can he develop? And you're right about the, the net game. And I'd love him to try it and I'd love him to succeed. Just not sure that that technique is going to work. All right. Well, that's Medvedev. And we're going to be talking a lot about him on ATV Tennis Radio throughout the year. That is for sure. And we will continue our discussions on that. But let's get back to our winner because Novak Djokovic, I mean, you mentioned the injury that he had. And he talked in that after that Fritz match about it being you know one of the special victories he had at the time and how he was struggling through and he wasn't right but you know the the way that the tournament ended up and you think 
hmm, how serious was that? I mean, obviously it was an injury. Yes, it was hampering him, but and he did say at the time that, and I think we talked about it a little bit in our previous podcast that he said, well, if this wasn't the Australian Open, I wouldn't be playing right now. You wonder that maybe he was just being a bit cautious by letting the world know that that was happening because it seemed to what occurred at the back end, those last couple of matches were just flawless from him. He wasn't feeling a thing. I know. And, you know, it's easy to be cynical and say, well, if that's an injury, I'd like one because it was just phenomenal quality of tennis. What I would say, though, is knowing Djokovic reasonably well, there are some people who try to deny their injuries, pretend they're not happening, and that's their way of dealing with them. Djokovic has always been terribly conscious. I remember asking him the question here when he'd retired from a quarterfinal, retired injured in a quarterfinal and a Grand Slam here in 2009 against Andy Roddick. And I said, why do you keep retiring? You know, do, do you feel more your injuries more severely than other players or, or, or do, do you feel you're more fragile or what? And he said, well, you know, I'm the only one that knows what it feels like to be in my body. So, you know, um, you have to trust me to know that I feel that this is, um, th- that I had to retire from these uh, matches. I talked to his, uh, the, the woman who taught him tennis, Elena Gencic, before, he, uh, before she died. And she was saying that a lot of junior tournaments, he'd start sneezing and wheezing. And, and, you know, she'd find that there were some flowers at the side of the court, some wild flowers, which he was allergic to. He is always conscious of his body. We know he's been big into diet. We know he's been big into uh, the way he lives his life. So I suspect that his natural instinct is when he feels something to assume it's a lot worse than it is. I think the thing that really makes people feel slightly taken for a ride is that he said in his on-court interview after the Taylor Fritz match in the third round, I have a tear. Now, if you have a tear of an abdominal yeah, muscle... you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Yeah. And it doesn't improve over the fortnight. And I suspect what happened, and I'm only speculating here... Um, that he probably felt something stretch and he got worried about it and for the first set in a bit he didn't um, trust himself to rotate his upper body which meant he couldn't hit a forehand and he took a painkiller and by the time the painkillers were working Fritz was back two sets all suddenly had something to defend and got nervous and Djokovic was able to break twice to win it in five sets thereafter Djokovic started playing with the injury and it gradually got better that's my take on this because I don't think you could play the level that he played in the semi-final and final with an abdominal tear well, he got through, and now he closes in on that uh, major record. He's racked up another one. I mean, that's a discussion point. It has to be a discussion point. But you know my view on that? I would like Federer, Nadal and Djokovic all to finish their career on the same number. Yes. All at 20 or all at 21, um, so that actually this ceases to be the defining discussion and or that they get close enough that it actually makes no difference you know but you also got other things like all-time weeks at number one to go for most masters titles you know also the head-to-head records against some of these younger players obviously he's got it against Medvedev at this particular point in time I think the number of weeks at number one is interesting because he will overtake Federer on the 8th of March Federer currently holds the record at 310 weeks. Um, Djokovic will equal that on the 1st of March and on the 8th of March will exceed it. And that, for me, is a phenomenal record. I think that people don't quite appreciate just how much the rankings reflect consistency. So to be in the top 10 
reflects remarkable consistency across 52 weeks. To do it across so many years, you know, it's more than six years. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It's slightly artificial at the moment because we have this um, weird ranking system which is totally understandable because it needs to be that way. The ranking system is primarily an entry list system for tournaments. It's never it was never intended to measure who was the best in the world, but it has that side effect. And I think um, Djokovic deserves that, but um, you know, Federer and Nadal will beat him on other things. I don't think Federer's record of 23 consecutive Grand Slam semi-finals will ever be beaten. Yes, and plenty to talk about. We're, a little bit later in the podcast, we'll talk about the whole experience of being here at the Australian Open and what that was like and maybe what it means for the tour going forward. We'll, we'll talk all about that because I think one of the things was the abdominal injury seemed to be the most prominent this year's event and whether there's a correlation there or not or something. It's something to watch for potentially for players moving forward. But we'll talk more about that later. Let's talk about the doubles because Dodig and Palasek, what a great story this is. 6-3-6-4 over the defending champions, Ram and Salisbury. Philip Palasek, what a great story I mentioned. Because he said he... He gave up for five years. We, we gave up for five years, but also he is with child now. Was yes. born while he's been here competing at the Australian Open. Yes. And uh, the other pair didn't even know that he'd uh, become a dad during the Australian Open. So, uh, no, it is a great story, but um, I have to say, having watched the final, I thought Ram and Salisbury would win because they seem um, born to this title. They won it last year. This was their first tournament together two years ago. Ram won the mixed doubles uh, yesterday. And I think that um, Ram and Salisbury went out there expecting to win. And... Palashek was without question the man of the final. He was stunning. Yep. And the uh, the score does not flatter Dodig and Palashek. They were absolutely worth it. And, and uh, acknowledgement to Palashek, he is the first Slovak man yes. ever to lift a Grand Slam tournament, a Grand Slam title. Uh, certainly representing Slovakia, um, there may have been somebody representing Czechoslovakia, but uh, certainly representing Slovakia until this time, Daniela Hantukova's four mixed doubles titles were all the Grand Slam titles that Slovakia as a sovereign state had to show. Yes, I mean, we go back to Ivan Lindel and talk about Well, that he was Czech, but Miloslav Maciej. Yes, so, you know, but but in terms of... Slova anyway, yes. yes, so you get the idea of where we're going with that. Um, but... For Rajiv Ram, he did make up for it a little bit in the mixed doubles with Babora Kretikova. He went over the Stoza-Ebden combination, 6-1, 6-4. And uh, Ram and Kretikova won this title two years ago. They played with different partners last year, and Kretikova won last year. Yep. And then they teamed back together this year, and they've won. Uh, and just to wind up on, just for, for completeness sake, Naomi Osaka had a good win over Jennifer Brady in the women's final, 6-4, 6-3. Yes, and that's four Grand Slam titles for Osaka. Out of four, uh, by the way. Uh, yeah, she's never lost a Grand Slam final. All her four titles have been on hard courts, two US Open, two here. But I do think that's interesting because there have been so many different winners in the women's uh, Grand Slams in recent years. And now Osaka has won four uh, since September 2018. And I think that might give a totally different energy to the top of women's tennis while the men I suspect before too long even the Djokovic and Nadal have won the last two will start to become more open 
Well, we're just going to pause it there for a moment because the Nolay fans are making their way back towards us in Garden Square. You may not be able to hear them, but they're going to make some noise very soon. So we're just going to move location, Chris, to somewhere a little quieter because they start packing up here very, very early. And I think the chairs we're sitting on are going to be taken away from us. So we'll just find a quiet spot that won't have any interruptions in the background. Peter Mercado and Chris Bowers with you. Coming up next on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, we'll look back on the rest of Australian Open 2021. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. They say it's the greatest era of tennis ever seen. Federer stretches, makes it! The bar has been raised to new heights. Djokovic should be able to smash it away, he does! And for those looking up, reaching the summit is going to take something special. Oh, wow! The climb will be tough, but the view will be worth it. The stage is set, the world is waiting. Extraordinary! Find the greatness within every player, every week, at every tournament at atptour.com. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and atptour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Well, we've managed to find a quieter spot just, you know, as the last of the spectators leave Melbourne Park and things start being packed up around us. We found one of the, the back courts, actually, that we're sitting on. And I've just got a sneaking suspicion that the grandstand we're sitting in might be deconstructed as we do the rest of this podcast. So we need to be careful. It would be appropriate, wouldn't it? Because uh, this is the uh, Australian Open where we had uh, the crowd sent out uh, during a match where um, it was Djokovic's match against uh, Taylor Fritz. Look, I know we talked a little bit about it post the final and everything like that in our earlier segment but you know kudos to Tennis Australia for managing to get this done we we know that there are so many different stories we're not going to go back through all of them again because you know what they are and we're like a broken record but to actually get to the other end intact for the most part yes we were without spectators for for part of it the preparation that went in the planning that went in will be a template. I just hope that at the end of this tournament once they've had a little bit of a break Craig Tiley and the crew write the manual on how to do something like this, something that they can take and improve on and maybe pass on to other organisations. I know that they've been talking to, to the Olympics and I'm sure the other tournaments around the world, the ATP, WTA and the majors are all sort of talking to one another about what happened here about the template but they've done an amazing job to actually get the tournament done. Yes I think the fact that we've got to the end of it and we can point to the Australian Open 2021 as having happened pretty much according to timetable is a remarkable achievement. There's a couple of things we need to keep an eye on though. One is that this tournament has made a massive loss and somehow they're going to have to recoup the money so where will that come from? If it comes from grassroots tennis in Australia will there be long term impacts on that? Will there be uh, an absence of pool of Australian players who could be competing for the titles 15, 20 years from now. That's uh, one possibility. The other thing I think that needs to be said is that, yes, Tennis Australia has taken all the plaudits, and rightly so, but the people of Victoria need to take the plaudits as well. Maybe it's easier for me to say that than you, because you are a person of Victoria. Um, But you will know, Peter, that last year you had two lockdowns. The first was about six weeks. The second one, 111 days. And if you hadn't gone through that there would have been no Australian Open because this place wouldn't have been safe for anyone to come to and they wouldn't have allowed anybody in and I think that that's important and I know that there was a massive trust factor involved because a lot of people have said we've just gone through all this 
we shouldn't be letting in an international sporting community. And they took that plunge. Not everyone was happy. And it seems, from our current vantage point, to have worked well. And therefore, I think it's great that that trust has been uh, borne out and that the tennis community has justified the faith that the people of Victoria had. It could so easily have gone wrong. And therefore, I think you know we have to say that Let's hope that this is a model that was only necessary for this year and that in future years, even if we have to pay heed to COVID-19 for a few more years to come, it's not at the same extreme level of everybody who came in having to quarantine for 14 days. And having said that, I mean, you do it once, you pick up a whole bunch of intel. So obviously there were lessons learned by what happened last year. There'll be lessons learned out of this tournament that will put us in good stead around the world for not, maybe not just COVID, but anything else that might come our way down the track. Yes. And, you know, I just hope we look back on this as a unique tournament um, rather than as the first of, say, three like it, because I think it'll be tough for them to repeat this, even if they have learned a lot of lessons from it. You know, I think we have to think of this time as something akin to the world wars and you know the uh, the tennis majors by and large stopped during the first and second world wars we lost Wimbledon last year the fact that we've been able to carry on with them I think is an amazing achievement but we are in re- sort of remarkable and unusual circumstances and uh, I hope that uh, we can keep everything in perspective and recognize that this is only a tennis tournament yes entertainment helps people and I think as an entertainment value spectacle, it has been of immense value, especially during those five days when we had the lockdown. I just hope that it does not have to be repeated at quite this extent in future years. Right, that's enough of the serious stuff. Let's get into the even more serious stuff. Aslan Karatsev, I did mention right off the top that we were going to be spending a bit of time talking about him. And uh, I mean, you could talk at, talk about how I you know, picked him. If you go back through the podcast to our time capsule predictions, it is on record. Absolutely. you. I mean, you have such a terrible record, but even a broken <laughs> clock is right twice a day. Well, this and, is one of my two. And therefore, this is one of your two, yeah. No, I mean, whatever made you choose him, you clearly had um, something going for it because he is a very, very powerful tennis player. He's very powerfully built. Um, he's got tremendous technique. He moves well. He moves better than you expect him to move. And he seems to have a nerve for the big points. Yes, he got a little bit lucky against Dimitrov in the quarter finals but even losing to Djokovic he gave him a run for his money in the second and third sets and uh, take my hat off to him for that yeah absolutely and and now the springboard is there so he's in the 40s I think when the live rankings and they get updated uh, during this week you can catch all that atptour.com and he can play out the rest of the year without having too many points to defend yes there are points at a better challenger level but he'll be playing on the main ATP tour yes there's one thing I would say at moments like this and it's Roberto Caratero. Roberto Caratero was a Spanish player who I think was a qualifier at Hamburg one year and he won it. He won the whole tournament and everyone said, wow, this guy's amazing. Never did anything afterwards. It does happen occasionally that a player just hits a rich vein of form at a tournament. Maybe it goes to their head a little bit. Maybe they think it's easier than it actually is. They forget what's actually got them there and they don't follow it up. I expect Karatsev to follow this up. I expect him to be a factor on the tour for a while because I think he's potentially the real deal but he hasn't proved a great deal yet and in a way the real proof will come in the next 
few weeks and months, depending on how many tournaments he's allowed to play, because the tour is still a little bit fragile at the moment. Um, and that's when we will really see how good he is. He's proved that he can play good tennis, but uh, that's only about 20% of it. Yes, and do it consistently across a year. Stefanos Tsitsipas, big win over Nadal, came from absolute, did all, the almost impossible, came from two sets of love down to beat Nadal. We then roll into the, the, the semi-final against Daniel Medvedev and there wasn't a lot left in the tank, which is understandable for the big tournament. He had a couple of five-setters, too, along the way. I've been wondering how much Tsitsipas lost that match because of having played Nadal two nights earlier in five sets and how much he would have lost anyway because Medvedev has played remarkable tennis this fortnight and it's all very well saying, yes, into a second Grand Slam final. But I think actually Medvedev has built on that amazing run he had in the second half of 2019 and is a better player now. So it might have happened anyway. I also wonder what would have happened if they'd been in um, different halves of the draw in terms of when they were playing, because if they played that match on Tuesday night, then uh, Tsitsipas would have had an extra day off. Having said that, he didn't have to play his fourth round match. He got a walkover. So in some respects the batteries were fully charged by the time he played Nadal I actually think that this will have made Tsitsipas grow as a person and as a tennis player and even if he lost to Medvedev I think his trajectory is still in the right direction yeah I agree I mean that big step forward if you can beat Nadal in those circumstances too like it wasn't a straight sets and Nadal was straight or anything like that Nadal you know he was playing really great tennis and Tsitsipas had to think his way through that to be able to turn it around and do it across three sets. Yes, and when we read that result in years to come, only those of us with a memory will actually be able to say, do you know, Nadal didn't fall away from the start of the third. In fact, Nadal's third set was sensational. He dropped one point on his serve. Yep. And that was the uh, when he was 5-6, uh, 40-love. So had he won that point, it would have been 24 straight points on his own serve in the third set. He lost it on the tiebreak by making a couple of errors. Uh, from then on, Tsitsipas was in. But what really impressed me about Tsitsipas in that match was that he never got too emotional. He just... He, he was intense enough, but he wasn't... Um, shouting around he was focused and I actually thought that was the factor that he took away from this match more than any other more even than the win although the fact that he won means that his attitude to it is rewarded with the win maybe let's I'll throw out a couple of other names too you pick one and talk about what have we learned about so I'll read some names Nadal Rublev Zverev Berrettini Fonini or your own that you might want to throw in? Well, Berrettini I'd pick out of that because I was worried at the end of 2019 that Berrettini might have just struck a rich vein of form, in particular at in the grass court season and the US Open. And I was a little worried that he wouldn't sustain it last year. It was hard to judge last year because we missed the five months of the year. The fact that he did so well this year and was only thwarted by that injury makes me think that Berrettini could be the real deal. And the fact that he is still... Um, got so much competition from within Italy. Zinner, okay, he had a really tough draw, losing first round to Shapovalov. That was tough. Uh, Musetti is still on his way up. Um, Fonini is clearly enjoying a, an Indian summer of his career because he doesn't want to be left behind by this young generation. He wants to play the role of, I was the guy that uh, blazed the trail for you. And you've got, uh, I mean, the depth in Italian, I mean, we could talk forever on that and, and how that's grown over the years as well. Andre Rublev, for me, I think, he... Uh, 
that all Russian encounter. When it's it, I think Andre was thinking. This is okay when we're on the same team at the ATP Cup. Not so much if I'm standing down the other end and I have to try and beat you. But it's happened three times now, hasn't yes. it, the majors? And I think that, look, I do think we underestimate the power of the matchup, not just in terms of whether one person's game suits another, but also the matchup in personalities. And when you've got um, players from the same country, there is a little bit of a hierarchy. We've seen this with the Spaniards, that very few of the Spaniards have beaten Nadal, and I think that's because he is on a pedestal for them, and so they're playing the reputation as well as the tennis player. And I think there is almost a little bit of um, Medvedev is the team leader, and therefore Rublev is up against the reputation as well as the tennis player. And it was interesting, I thought he would have learned something from the way he slightly imploded in the third set tiebreak in the US Open quarterfinal. And yet he sort of almost seemed to be beaten by the heat. And it wasn't that hot a day. No, it wasn't. It was humid, though, yeah. from memory. So it was yeah. humid. And it was, I think, the warmest day of the tournament by that stage. he spent so much time in Spain. He's used to this kind of thing. Yeah, true, true. A um, couple of the other things, obviously, we've talked about in our previous podcast. We mentioned that Shapovalov Sinner thing and looking into the future and how good that was. Sinner talking about how. The best thing he got out of the last couple of weeks has been practicing with Rafa because they were hitting partners over in Adelaide, um, setting up the right mentality. So it wasn't necessarily about the forehands and the backhands. It was actually about setting the right mentality out there. And it's so valuable. Roger Federer makes a point of bringing the younger players over to um, the Middle East where he's living and hitting with them, maybe to do a bit of scouting. But it's valuable for the players as well. Rafa's starting to do this as well. You suspect that these top players are wanting to you know, work with these younger players to obviously get the scout on them, but also to help develop them too. And if Sinner's picked that up, then that's going to put him in good stead because I thought he had a good mentality going in anyway. Yes, when we prepare our matches, when we're doing commentary, it's amazing how many you read, you know, practice with Roger Federer, went to Rafael Nadal's academy in Mallorca. I mean, yes, it's smart on their part because they get to see the youngsters, they get a sense of their games, and I'm sure they make some notes that they refer to at a later date. I also think, though, for someone like Federer, you know, he runs this um, uh, player management agency now called Team 8. Yes. And, you know, I think he's looking for people um, who might be a good fit to be managed by this sort of boutique uh, player management agency. So there's a lot of interest in that. Um, yes, it's good that they do it, but I wouldn't read too much altruism into it. But it's good. I mean, that we're going to talk about the next gen. It's going to be a continuing theme with the, the next gen finals in, in Milan again at the end of the year, we hope. Asterisk next to everything. We're just going to say we're hope at the moment. And, Absolutely. Yeah, we're starting to see them grow and develop. I mean, Seb Cordard wasn't uh, here down under, but, you know, he could be the one to take that next step too. And I think there's going to be some really interesting storylines here. I mean, with everything being up in the air in terms of the schedule and everything like that, we're going to see more of these stories. We're going to see more next geners make their, their mark too. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the rest of the season goes. Do you know what I think? In recent years, it's been the women who've had so many different Grand Slam champions and the men have generally, well, it's been monopolised since 2016 by Federer, Nadal and Djokovic. I think we're now going to see a lot more different men winning the major titles and a lot fewer women. It won't be a complete reversal, but I think Osaka has established herself as the woman to beat, certainly on hard courts, in the women. And I think the men, we're going to start now seeing a greater spread of players, certainly reaching finals and, uh, yeah, lifting the top trophies. 
It's been a massive couple of weeks. It's been a massive operation over the past three weeks to get this happening. You've been in quarantine. You're going to stay on, actually, in Australia for another I week. I mean, you know, it's it's been exhausting, to be honest. But um, I just felt that having come for quarantine, having got a three-month visa, I'm just going to stay on for another week just to unwind from it all, actually, and, and enjoy this wonderful country. Well, uh, rest up, because we have one more podcast to do. Yes. So we'll get on to that. We'll get into that in our next podcast, a special that we're going to be running with uh, an interview that you did with uh, Tanasi Kokonakis. So look forward to that. But that's it for the 2021 Australian Open. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast over the past few weeks as we've tried to bring you the flavour of what's happening here in Melbourne and, of course, the rebroadcast of Australian Open Radio through ATP Tennis Radio. Plenty more live radio coverage to come this year, which is great. So we're heading to Miami and then across to Europe with events in Monte Carlo, Madrid and Rome. If it's podcast you're looking for, well, you've come to the right place. As I mentioned, next week in our next podcast, we'll be hearing from an Australian on the comeback trail and discuss the subject of mental health in sport. I'm Peter Mercado. My thanks to Chris Bowers, and I hope you can join us next weekend where we'll bring you, amongst other things, a really insightful interview with Australian Tanasi Kokonakis. Thanks for listening.